Hello, everyone. This is uh, Intercom's Oil and Gas podcast number two. Uh, and uh, I am Glenn Parrott, and with me is my co host, Aaron Vandeford. Mr. Vandeford, good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you for uh, listening, everyone. Um, as we mentioned in our last or initial podcast, uh, as we roll this forward, we're thinking that uh, we can talk about things that are uh, timely and topical to the oil and gas industry and what we're seeing and what we're thinking, um, and then uh, hopefully have uh, some you know get some interviews lined up. We'll do that, but talk about things that at least we're seeing in the marketplace that uh, we wanted to to mention and go over and uh, thematically this uh, this week we're looking at sort of the state of capital but before we get into that timely and topical sort of I would say news of the week but it's really been more like the news of the past couple weeks (laughs) but it's only been a couple weeks it's pretty quick so uh, yeah and and particularly here in Colorado uh, where Intercom is based for those of you who don't know uh, we're out of Denver, Colorado, and uh, news in Denver in the oil and gas world is uh, this Colorado Senate Bill 181, which has uh, come along and, and gone through a lightning speed, really, through the, the, the legislature. And um, again, for those of you who don't know, Senate Bill 181 locally, uh, the goal on that one is to change the mission of the Colorado Oil and Gas uh, Conservation Commission um, from fostering the oil and gas industry to regulating it to protect uh, public health and the environment. Overall, that's at a very broad level, but in short, what it really does is it is um, giving more local control uh, to the communities versus state control. Um, the bill is, I guess it's uh, nominally being known as the Boulder Bill, um, being driven out of Boulder, uh, certainly has uh, um, uh, their, uh, their goals around it. And, um, and the oil and gas industry, of course, is leery about it. Um, it, it the fear being it was going to dramatically slow uh, new drilling over time, significantly shrink the industry, and therefore the economic base, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the red flag that, that I think I hear the most from the, the oil and gas community is that, you know, we haven't been involved in this process as it's moving through and our voice isn't being considered. And so not being a part of that process, I think, you know, we came out of the election cycle uh, in November, and I think the industry wanted to have that dialogue and move that forward. And uh, this seems to be a very fast-paced, one-sided uh, push-through. Yeah, some would say um, it's very one-sided, certainly. the, um, <laughs> And that's just it, is because Proposition 112 that came along back in November was defeated, uh, 55 to 45. And then, you know, within a you know couple of months' time frame, this is obviously a way to circumvent that... Um, election result mm-hmm. or a way to, I guess, influence potentially would be um, another way of thinking about it. And when I, it's not in my mind a matter of at this point, if it gets signed into law, I think it's just a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, coming out of, I guess, Weld County, I was kind of taking a look at um, 
uh, Weld County, um, the, the commission chairwoman, Barbara Kirkmeyer, and uh, chairman, Mike Freeman, um, just they were kind of making commentary the other day around, uh, um, and Mike Freeman in particular was saying, look, you're giving local control to, to counties that are opposed to oil and gas, but what you're not doing is you're not giving local control to counties that support oil and gas. And their concern certainly is that um, when you take a look at the finance and the administration in Weld County, uh, the results from their estimation is that it would mean a 9% reduction in overall revenue. Would, you know, and that's, they're very, they're very real economic fears for them. And, uh, uh, and they feel like you know, they're not getting an active uh, or a willing um, hearing Mm-hmm. Uh, from the governor or from uh, or from the state so um, so in any event on the heels of that I guess the yesterday's news uh, or excuse me not yesterday at this point it was on Wednesday on 320 so first day of spring uh, Adams County uh, the commissioners passed a temporary moratorium on oil and gas permits so so it's a six month uh, moratorium on oil and gas permits. And, and what's amazing about this to me is that it was really done. Um, the commissioners put out just only a 24-hour notice, and they said, hey, we're going to hold this meeting, right? And the everybody in that room, I guess over 90% of the people in that room were like, we don't want you to pass this moratorium. Why are you doing this? And so they politely listened, the five commissioners, and passed at 5-0, <laughs> moratorium on oil and gas, on new permitting uh, in Weld County. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, my take is, you know, the uncertainty around 181, which hasn't even cleared the state house yet, um, is basically spilled over and uh, led to its first moratorium in the state, which I, I have troubles understanding or seeing the benefits or why this was even done. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, this same group ahead of uh, 112, I believe, gave that same minimum 24-hour notice and and went through that process. Um, but this time they, they, you know, they got questioned on it and said, "Hey, this this doesn't feel right." And they said, "Well, it's the only time that we could all get together. It just happened to be tomorrow." Yeah. <laughs> so it's on the thin schedule. You know, everyone's got a busy schedule apparently over there. <laughs> <laughs> They're busy guys. So uh, so that's the latest and greatest that's going on here in Colorado, oil and gas. Um, and so not to dwell on it too much, but timely and topical, there you are. More to come. Uh, to be honest, we were going to uh, be uh, giving sort of periodic updates on this, but the, the, the period has been shortened fairly dramatically. So Yeah, I think uh, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of change very quickly, but I think ultimately we're going to see this play out probably over – six months, a year, two years, as it gets, you know, the lawyers get involved and we really understand what implications this is actually going to have. Because my understanding is that a lot of the way that this is written is fairly loose and open uh, and, and has a lot of room for interpretation. Yeah. And so. Yeah. And, okay, so in fairness, you know, their budget, I mentioned the budget before, and uh, shouldn't see too much of an immediate impact, immediate um, in that, you know, their oil and gas production revenue is two years in arrears. So, yes, to your point, I think that uh, 
you're, you're going to see a, um, a lot of legal maneuvering coming forward out of this. Yeah, I think with, you know some of the other interesting things that, that are going to come down the pike from this is where does this get picked up in other places outside of Colorado? Um, are there other states or other uh, governing bodies that are going to look to this to as a model to either not do or to implement in other areas? Right. I would submit to you, yes. I mean, you know, there's the, the I don't want to say conspiracy theorists around there. Um, that's really not it. However, I think it's generally regarded that that um, Colorado is number one um, activity in the DJ, and that's gonna the, the first domino. Next would be New Mexico. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, if you're if you're really gunning forward to the Permian. Um, you know, you start in Colorado and see where, what progress you make. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, moving along. Uh, so, I guess, uh, uh, what else? This was about two weeks ago. Um, it came on out and just wanted to touch base on it because I find it interesting. Um, and that's uh, um, Haynes and Boone. Um, they released their, their uh, borrowing-based redetermination survey results. So, uh, just so everyone knows, I mean, you know, Haynes and Boone, Intercom's worked with Haynes and Boone for, gosh, 10 years now. They've been a sponsor of our conference events, but um, uh, their energy group has really got some, some interesting stuff that comes on out that twice a year they, 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 they do this. And uh, their energy group pulls oil and gas producers, um, oil field service companies, um, energy lenders, private equity firms, and other sort of participants in the industry to really get their predictions about um, the producer's future borrowing capacity or their borrowing basis. And uh, generally, I guess, the recent drop-off in oil and gas prices, and then when I say recent, I'm talking fourth quarter, um, the results out of this survey is that it really hasn't rattled the lenders too much, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, uh, they're not seeing as a longer-term trend. So I guess, let me see, specifically based on the poll, um, I guess most of the respondents uh, are seeing their borrowing basis. They expect it to stay the same or just fall slightly in 2019. Yeah, and we're just getting into that process now. And, and we've actually seen a couple companies, Ultra Petroleum being one, who went through that process just a little bit early and accelerated. And they got a re- reaffirmation of their borrowing base held flat. And so we're starting to actually see, you know, these these polling numbers actually come through in in these redeterminations for for uh, the borrowing basis, which I think is positive for the companies. Yeah. So for like, I don't want to say the uninitiated, but but generally for for as a as a generalist question, um, you know, why the question might be why is a resilient borrowing base important? Yeah. I mean, it, the that becomes the liquidity. Uh, in addition to the cash flow that you're generating to run your business. And so when borrowing bases decline, prices decline, there's an increased crunch on liquidity. And that that can be troublesome for companies. Um, And so, you know, to have a healthy banking group or a healthy uh, liquidity position uh, certainly allows you to plan longer term. Exactly. Um, And so, you know, uh, so coming out of that is, you know, this notion around sort of capital sourcing. Um, you know, where are producers planning to, to source their capital? So um, as we talk about that, you know, um, 
if the capital markets have become less important as a source for, I guess, oil and gas companies, um, you know, we're seeing what this is a downward trend from 2018. Um, so I guess only on the survey, if we take a look at that, I guess 12% of the responses, uh, only 12% indicated firms would issue either equity or debt to the capital markets as opposed to like 20% in 2018. Right. So, and, so obviously they're not getting love from the capital markets, from the public markets. From the public markets. And, and I think we'll get into this here in a little bit, but you know, some of that equity may be able to be used in an M&A environment. I don't think those are getting picked up there. And so oh, okay, yeah. maybe I, it, there's seemingly a willingness, uh, notwithstanding some of the, the recent um, pullbacks from, from specific deals, for other companies to take equity from other companies and, and get larger, um, which gets people closer to this free cash flow number. So size really matters in that free cash flow, and that's another uh, source of capital, if you will. Yeah, they uh, you know they they talk about it in, you know specifically you know cash from operations and JVs with private equity firms. Um, they're they're seeing that as the trend in, in that survey result. Um, and I guess the one of the other the big questions on that survey was the impact on uh, of commodity prices and the impact of commodity price volatility in particular at the end of 2018. As we all know, there was this this massive drop off um, in uh, pricing, uh, certainly leading to a, a fairly well the most volatile uh, quarter of 2018, uh, certainly. So, you know. How did that impact things? And we kind of mentioned it before, but um, I guess most respondents generally did not expect another wave of bankruptcies, which is good. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we certainly saw, and you you highlighted this really well in your Dallas presentation, this this really kind of spike in volatility, one we hadn't seen since back in two thousand eight, right? right. Yeah. Um, but it was very quick. We saw a an immediate response back. Um, kind of in this January time frame from the middle of December when prices started to come down, which I think people got comfort in that. And so I think that, I think the banks are are looking at that in this survey and and saying, all right, there's some stability here, but, you know, we'll we'll see. So, you know, I think that, you know, Timely and topical, I'd say, you know, for anybody interested in this, you can go out to the Haynes and Boone website um, and you can, you can download it and take a look at it. It's, it's interesting. Uh, as I men- mentioned, of, they, they update it twice a year. So um, it's a good resource. So that's out there now. Um, so I guess next on the list, um, anything that popped on up, I guess the only thing that I've I think you mentioned earlier was the news that came about from Denbury. Right. Um, so, uh, and just, you know, for anybody listening, today is Friday, March 22. And so you see this news pop up yesterday. Yeah, after the market closed, uh, Denbury and PVA, uh, who announced a merger earlier in, or later in 2018, uh, decided to mutually go their separate ways and, and continue on an a independent path. And uh, I thought it was it was pretty telling to to read the the two news releases. Uh, certainly had had some similarities between them. They both mutually agreed 
But Denberry kind of threw in this this extra component of saying, hey, given the price downturn and, and instability, so they referenced some of that from December, and so stock prices come down, and our belief that certain PVA shareholders aren't going to vote with us enough to get this done, it's better that we just cut ties now instead of, you know, wasting more capital, uh, was essentially the way that I read that. Yeah, and, and it's... I guess another example um, of companies now saying, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. You know, so I think that that has been one of the offshoots of of what we saw in that volatility in December. Um, Leading into that, there were a number of corporate M&A deals um, that were announced. Some have gotten done. Some were kind of stepping back from. And, you know, I think that it's also important to look at the activist investors alive and well. And so some of the deals that got through, Resolute and Simrex, I think had an activist investor that was really committed right. to moving Resolute along, uh, and that one got done. Uh, here, just the opposite, some guys in the, the PVA shareholder camp said, hey, wait a minute, we may be able to do better here. Um, and let, let's keep maybe moving this... this uh, company along. And so the shareholders are, are making their voice heard. And sometimes the uh, the activist can be within the very company you want to get in bed with. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I joke because I'm thinking about, of course, EQT and, and Rice. And Rice, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's a perfect example of, hey, we got, got together and <laughs> Now our, our activist shareholder is actually the 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 other company that we bought. Yeah. Um, and so you know, very very active. I think you know QEP Elliott uh, yeah. is another one that I think is very interesting. Elliott. I don't of, understand on Elliott. What's going on there? I don't know. It, it it it. I think this is one to to certainly keep watching. And so you have this known activist firm who came in and said, "Hey, we're going to take you guys private." Here's the the dollar amount, share price moved up to it. Market believed that this was going to happen, yeah. and then they kind of stepped back and said, "All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. We did we did a little cleaning house. We got some new management guys in here, but we're going to run the strategic alternatives process." And, and by the way, QEP, remember that Bakken deal you were selling to Vantage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's not do that yet. Let's let's put all of our options back on the table because if I really take this thing private, maybe I want it, or maybe someone else does. Um, but if that ultimately goes into a take private situation, uh, it could be really interesting to see what Elliot does and um, if there's other opportunities to put things together or whatever that may be. Right. Uh, but that's that's another one that's that's unique, interesting to watch. So when you think about, it, I, I guess I'm, I have to go back a little bit on the timing for for Elliot and whatnot. But you know, how much of this being a direct outcropping from? the downturn in Q4. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think going back, it was a little bit leading up to that yeah. downturn. Uh, certainly QEP was yeah, prior, yeah. was going through this process, and Elliot was certainly chirping. It wasn't just like they, they started. And I think if I remember correctly, uh, or QEP was trying to really focus on their, their Permian assets. Yeah clean house, really get into this very focused uh, asset 
class and, and where we're going to be putting capital. And that's why they got, you know, the Bakken deal, uh, which actually people thought was pretty positive um, on the table. Hmm. And then I think as things started to fall away, the market pricing, mm-hmm. Elliot kind of came in and said, all right, hold on a second. Let's, yeah. let's uh, I'll take this thing private. And then started even further solidifying and saying, hey, let's not sell this thing yet. We, there may be better days or, or some other option value for this. The, um, as I kind of taking a look through some of our, our notes or, you know, we originally wanted to start off on this and say, hey, look, thematically, we wanted to talk about the state of capital and we've kind of jumped right into it from sure. timely and topical right into uh, where we're at. And um, I guess um, if I, if we're mentioning that Haynes and Boone survey, you know, if, if, if uh, as that survey kind of suggests that the capital markets have become a less important source of funding for oil and gas companies is cash from operations and JVs with private equity firms. Is that the answer these companies think it is? And Well, it's interesting. I was, I was looking at a Tudor Pickering note the other morning, and they were mentioning in their universe, and they, they had done this study on uh, at what size company and oil price do they need to be free cash flow positive. Okay. And so they were saying their large cap universe may be able to do it at low 50. And their small cap price and and mid cap mm-hmm. really kind of need this $60. Right. And so if free cash flow is going to be this mantra going forward, size also has to be considered. Sure. And so that naturally fuels some of this M&A. And I think that that's what you saw some some of the the deals like Chesapeake's deal really took this over levered, uh, highly levered name and put a growth asset with it. You got size out of it and we got a healthier balance sheet. Um, those may be still on the table. They probably just have to get reset now. Hmm. But I think you'll we'll see more of that corporate M and A, some of these other cash flowing M and A because. The longer this goes on, the more size and scale these companies need to actually generate that free cash flow. Hmm. The um, within the the the, the public market sector in particular, I guess you know the 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 big question being um, that I think that the the industry is struggling with is this general question around has the broad market abandoned energy. Especially when you have got these other alternatives out there from an investor standpoint, you know, the, the fangs of the world being Facebook and Amazon and Apple, Netflix and Google. So what, what, can that, what can the industry do to sort of say, hey, you know, we may not be, I don't want to say the most attractive girl at the dance, um, but, but certainly investors are looking at other sectors going, that's much more attractive than what energy's got. And so, you know, if that is the case, you know, what what is the the saving grace coming back for energy? Yeah, I, and I don't know. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> if I did, I'd probably make a lot of money. But I do think that um, it's time, and so it's not a matter of if; it's probably a matter of when energy stocks rebound. Uh, 
Yeah. And so we spent a lot of 2018 where oil prices actually recovered a fair amount. Yep, agreed. And and stock prices did not. And so, you know, we trailed the broad indexes and, you know, a lot of that has to do with the sentiment from investors. Exactly. And there's some other things that are out there that I want to... They're just distrustful that, of energy, I think. And I, I think the longer that goes on, someone's going to have to take the position of, hey, remember this energy stuff? That's still there. That hasn't gone away. And actually, it's healthier today than it was, you know, a year ago, two years ago, or five years ago when it was $100 oil. Right. And, you know, we have to continue to, to remind investors of this. And it tends to be a space when it comes back, it follows very quickly. But it's, you know, time is, is kind of one of those things that I can't tell you when, but I can tell you that it probably is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's too big of an industry for it to be forgotten. No, no, completely agree. Um, and and you know, there's there's all sorts of things. Again, is what we see it here at Intercom, as you you know are you know very uh, succinct in saying. You know, Intercom does sit at this intersection between the capital markets and and the industry, and so we we hear a lot and we see a lot. Um, and uh, I you know. There's many aspects to that. Part of it is um, certainly the broader market, you know, environment. There's also what companies can do to improve themselves and help their own messaging cause. Um, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, they, they, that message has to, you know, be propagated on out in a way that makes sense so that people are like, okay, I understand this better. But it is but, pretty interesting, and we we you know we sit at this intersection as as we talk about a lot. But just looking at conference numbers, we host our our Dallas conference and our Denver conference. And we can take a, a quick look at who's showing up. Right? Who are the new investors showing up? Uh, we are seeing more generalists poking around the space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, have those dollars been committed yet? Don't know. That said, they're showing up. They're trying to learn. I think that's a positive. Uh, we've gotten more and more uh, family offices, more and more uh, private capital options that are coming in to, to kind of fill some of these spaces. And so that's a little different look and feel to this capital picture for all of these folks. Let's uh, let's talk about private equity just briefly. Yeah. Um, sort of your sort of thoughts on private equity. I think there's certainly some uh, concerns, uh, but you know we can talk about that. But um, sort of the state of the market for. For PE, for the for the PE, and I, I'll I'll expand that to private capital, because I think the face of private capital is changing a little bit. And okay. So, uh, you know, your traditional private equity model of this, you know, two and twenty, this large waterfall type idea. Well, the longer we're trying to play this free cash flow game, that is a hard one to do for private equity. So it, we're we're having to make adjustments on some of those those return thoughts and thresholds. Um, we've got some companies and LPs that are going direct sourcing to, to different capital. Yeah. And so that, that I think is a pretty interesting shift. So uh, groups like, like Florida Lee, like Florida uh, Lee looking for direct investment. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and institutions and family offices are, are willing to say, Hey, if I kind of, I won't bypass this middleman 
and, and I can get comfortable with these companies and the way that they're putting capital to work, then I can put my money closer to the drill bit, which means that I can generate more of a return, even in this different type of, of cycle that we're kind of going through. Right. Um, so I think that that's something that we'll see a little bit more, more of. Um, so I kind of made this statement around, you know, problems with private equity. I didn't mean to sort yeah. of, you know, indict. I'm just thinking about it from an exits perspective, the the challenges that 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 we're seeing right now. And you're hearing about it even at like the, you know, the private capital uh, conferences. Yep. Um, you know, what the how do the how do they handle some of these these exits, especially now? It's problematic. Yeah. So these natural exits, these IPOs are are not really there. So um, Good Night Midstream last week is a, a great example of, of two private equity firms that kind of came together and said, hey, I think we got we can add more capital and we can we can add some more horsepower. There's more more things to do with this, but I can get it now out of one fund that I have in in, in uh, Tailwater, Tailwater Capital yeah. oh. and get it over here into TPG. We're still both working. And now we kind of have this new time horizon set. <laughs> And the company's working well. And so I thought that was a really well done uh, and and Good collaborative example, example right. of uh, how private equity firms are probably going to have to work better with each other also to get these natural exits and, and continue growth in a private world. Yeah, it's a, um, uh, I didn't mean to imply it was gloom and doom. It's not. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's very cyclical and we're, you know, uh, this too shall change. Oh, yeah. So, well, I, and, and I think, you know, the other things that the private capital side are doing is, you know, the resurgence of a, a, the drill co, uh, where capital is coming in to say, hey, these companies may not have all the capital and, and resources to drill all of this development drilling. And so we're really taking the shift to development drilling. I can come in and help develop this specific asset with these specific dollars and generate a return, a healthy return, and everyone has a win-win set of, of uh, outcomes. And right. so that those drill codes, I think, is a, another way that even the private equity space is getting into um, instead of just funding right. direct management teams. Yeah. So I think there's some creativity there on the, the private equity side that I think will ultimately bode well for, for the firms. Interesting. Okay. Well... Any other thoughts on that that we wanted to cover on capital? Um, no, I think those were the main things. I think the I did want to go back on one other thing on on the activist investor. Oh, right. Uh, you know, certainly we think about this this activist investor, and our feathers automatically get bristled a little bit. <laughs> There's some things that the the quote unquote activist investor may be doing well. Sure. Uh, okay. And quietly moving along. And one of those is the corporate social responsibility. And so it's not one of those heavy hammers that, that investors are asking for, but they're using it and I think getting feedback from their LPs to say, hey, we want to invest in companies that are, that are sharing more information, being more transparent with uh, their corporate social responsibilities. And so that's a, a big conversation in the boardroom right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing a lot of companies come out with new information. Yeah. Um, embracing. It, embracing. And, and I think it, that will ultimately help 
in things like 181, potentially, or some of these other regulatory environments, does it help the stock price? Not sure at this point. Although, um, you know, the, the funds that are pushing for this are able to raise or differentiate themselves to raise more capital. Yeah, if you that they could a, ultimately put to work in these companies. You so. have a mandate coming down from a, a group like BlackRock saying yeah. this has to be addressed before we even consider this an investment. That should make people pay attention. People are going to pay attention. And so it's a big topic in the boardrooms. I think it's it's something that uh, shouldn't be forgotten as we're as we're starting to think about, you know, what information needs to be put out there so we can uh, make good investment decisions. But, you know, that's one place on a, on a softer side, the activist investor is, had, has made some real strides, in, I would say, in the industry as a, as a whole collection. Hmm. As we, okay, I'm sorry. I was going to switch gears a little bit. I'm not a little bit. I was actually going to ask you a whole different question. <laughs> That's good because I'm, I'm done with that one. I, I kind of just, I wanted to go back there because I, I didn't want to leave that out because we're, we're launching a new website today, um, High Point Resources. Okay. Yep. And so there we got a new website up. But one of the interesting additions on that website is their corporate social responsibility. Yeah. And some of the reporting and uh, I think it's, it's very well done. It's very genuine. Uh, but it's also one of those things that, you know, as we were thinking about what what do we need to have out there. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is important. And, again, for any sort of listeners who aren't familiar with Entercom, um, you know, not only do we, you know, provide management consulting services to oil and gas, but it's across the board, not just communications. But uh, we have a whole graphics uh, and design uh, team as well that works on everything from, you know, logo and brand up through, um uh, corporate presentations and messaging, as well as, as Aaron just mentioned, websites and website design. So, um, you know, we are seeing, I would submit more and more of that interest in, hey, how can I fold this into my existing messaging? Mm-hmm. So, And how does it fit? So, all right, switch gears. Well, no, I was just going to mention that, uh, I was going to say, look, we're kind of, you know, end of, coming towards the uh, end of March, sort of the wrapping up of the of earnings season. Any, from your perspective, uh, highlights, takeaways, observations? Yeah, so I, I'll, I would say- It's a pretty say, broad question. It is, which is great, <laughs> which means I can say anything and I can answer it. <laughs> uh, but to, to kind of come back to what we started off this podcast with, in the next few weeks, we're going to see these borrowing base redetermination announcements. And I think that that'll be a, another marker in the industry uh, for us to say, hey, capital is going to be there for these guys in the near term and liquidity is going to be there. Uh, I, I believe that that is the case. They're, everything's messaging that way. Haynes and Boone's report supports that. But we're going to get this ne- next marker here in the next couple of weeks. And I think that'll be a big thing for folks. Uh, reserves were up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was a year where companies were able to grow reserves, not only just cash flow and production uh, in a measured manner, but reserves were up. And so I think that that will also play into that reserve-based lending argument uh, or case when the borrowing bases come out. But, you know, we're, we're growing this industry even at a price that may not support rapid growth. Gotcha. And so I think that that was one of the key takeaways that, that I kind of came away from. So as you look forward then into Q2, Q3, any, you know, anything that you want to 
uh, prognosticate upon? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll throw this out there. And it, one, one of the really interesting things, and I think we touched on it last, last podcast, the pricing in the Permian and the differential has is, is shrunk dramatically. Right. Um, and I think it will be very interesting as we get closer to the end of 2019 when more infrastructure comes in place in the Permian. Right. I think we'll start to see those guys really step on the gas a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to keep an eye on it, certainly. So. And it, so I would, it, I would, I wouldn't put too much stock in a lot of these guys saying, "Hey, we're going to be free cash flow positive. We're going to do all this." I, I would look to the Permian guys to step on the gas first, and then see how how people react. Yeah. Uh, from the investment community. Fair enough. Um, okay. Um, any short-term uh, thoughts because I'm heading someplace with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wrapping things up here with our observation around the NCAA tournament that's kicked off. <laughs> so I'm switching gears in that um, we've got, so I don't know if you're familiar, if you saw Rick. Rick is one of our analysts. Um, he's uh, one of these whip smart uh Colorado School of Mines guys, and you know he's got his bracket already done, and, and well, it's, it's already kicked off, right? It's on Bloomberg, so it, 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 it's under Intercom. We've we've entrusted him to, because I'm sure he's got a spreadsheet for all of it. Well, that's just it. You know, these guys, you know, especially the, and nothing against School of Mines. It's just my experience with these School of Mines guys is, um, they're never ones to 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 do something relatively uh, you know, on a gut feel or instinct when there's a ridiculously complicated and, and amazingly complex spreadsheet that can be done instead <laughs> and apply it towards your, your thesis. And, uh, and Rick's got this all figured out and he, he's going up against all the other analysts that he can to, to, to represent, well, himself initially, but now I've absconded with that and said, you're representing Intercom, buddy, so, <laughs> so don't blow it. Of course, Marquette loses. Um, <laughs> you know, um, there's always going to be an upset. I know Murray State busted up Marquette, <laughs> and frankly, it wasn't all of Murray State. It was just that one one player, um, Morant, I believe. So, um, <laughs> and then of course, Michigan State um, did its best to lose uh, in this first round, but eventually, kind of, they just stopped the Braves, <laughs> and that almost ruined his bracket. So, anyway. Um, we're going to keep an eye on that one as well. Hopefully by next week uh, or 10 days from now, or well, not hopefully, we are going to know. Uh, we are going to know, and then, and then it's opening day at the Rockies. And Yes, um, uh, and I'm actually really looking forward to that one as well. <laughs> it's opening day. Okay, that's all I've got. Is there anything else that we wanted to touch base on? I know I've kind of traversed. Um, I know we've got a couple of questions uh, that are in the uh, OG Podcast uh, mailbox, which is ogpodcast at intercominc.com. I don't have it in front of me. I don't, um, uh, so I'm not, uh, we'll just let that um, flow over into next week unless uh, there's anything in particular that we want to grab from there. But um, if anybody does have a question, please feel free to submit it, and uh, hopefully we'll allocate ourselves a little more time next time. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate your listening in. And uh, until next time, 
This is uh, Glenn Parrott and Aaron Vandeford from Intercom. Thank you very much. Bye now.